29 years ago this week, Captain Robert Ford, an aviator who made his mark in the era of what were called clippers or flying boats, passed away at his ranch in California at the age of 88. Ford had earned his wings as a naval aviator before joining Pan American Airways in 1933. He flew the Caribbean before transferring to the Atlantic Division in 1939, flying clippers between New York and Lisbon. With the outbreak of World War II in Europe, he transferred to flying clippers across the Pacific Ocean. Captain Ford was ferrying mail and passengers from San Francisco to New Zealand December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Ford and his crew of the plane, named the Pacific Clipper, were stranded in Auckland, New Zealand, with the Imperial Japanese Navy blocking their way home. Eventually, Pan Am headquarters ordered them to fly to New York the long way around via Asia, Africa, the Atlantic, and South America. Without adequate maps, prepared runways and ground crews, or even reliable supplies of aviation fuel, the intrepid crew worked their way around the globe. The entire trip covered over 31,000 miles and over 209 hours of flying time, some of it overseas containing enemy ships. The Clipper had a range of 4,500 miles and its longest single flight was 3,583 miles across the South Atlantic from Central Africa to Brazil. This epic 31,500-mile month-long trek brought the crew back to New York on January 6, 1942, the first circumnavigation of the globe by a commercial airliner. In an interview before he passed away, Ford recalled that fateful day. On the day of the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, <clears throat> we were in the air, having taken off from Noumea, New Caledonia, en route to Brisbane, Australia. And we were across the international date line so that it was December 8th for us. When the radio operator came up to me in the cockpit and said, the Japanese are bombing Pearl Harbor, it was no surprise to us. For many months before leaving Treasure Island at San Francisco to go out over the Pacific, we had to sign for a sealed envelope giving us instructions for when the Japanese should attack. Not if, but when. Bonjour and bienvenue. Hello and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and this is where the saying goes, who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer? This episode, an ode to transoceanic aviation, 
was made at the request of and with the assistance of Maniac Tom from Portland, Oregon, who, while an avid listener, suffers from the infirmity of being an Ohio State grad and football fan. But Tom deserves a shout out for getting his hands on the interview with Captain Ford and sending it to the Minions in the Fun Facts production department. Thank you, Maniac Tom. And now, on to the rest of this podcast, the seventh episode of season three. What is a flying boat? Simply put, it's an aircraft that lands and takes off from the water on its fuselage. This is different from a modern-day seaplane, which uses floats to land on water rather than being supported by the fuselage. Flying boats developed in the early days of aviation. Airports were not widespread, and being able to land or take off from any body of water opened up many possibilities. The Pacific Clipper, flown by Captain Ford, was a Boeing 314 one of the last in a long history of flying boats. During the 1930s, transoceanic travel was beyond the capability of all but a handful of aircraft. A solution was offered by giant dirigibles, such as the Graf Zeppelin and the Hindenburg. The dirigibles offered luxury service including staterooms, dining rooms, lounge, piano, observation deck, and smoking rooms. When the Pioneer Zeppelin Airship Service, which began in 1928, created a void in transoceanic air travel with the crash of the dirigible Hindenburg on May 6, 1937, in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Oh, the humanity. Pan Am was ready to fill the void. They had been developing their early international flights around the flying boats. Pan Am's original aircrafts came from Consolidated Aircraft, the Martin Company, and Sikorsky, and headed first to the Caribbean and South America. Not content to stand still, the president of Pan Am, Juan Trippi, in 1935 started a series of negotiations with Boeing for the production of a flying boat capable of guaranteeing transatlantic passenger flights with a high degree of safety, comfort, and speed. On July 21, 1936, Pan Am signed a contract for six model 314s, the first of which made its initial sea run on Puget Sound on May 31, 1938. Pan Am carried on its tradition of naming the aircraft Clippers after the 19th century merchant sailing ships, thus the name of Ford's plane Pacific Clipper. These planes provided the ultimate in luxury airplane travel in its day, unmatched even today in sheer elegance. 
the air-conditioned and heated cabin had five passenger compartments, a sit-down dining room with china and linen service, a bar, men's and women's dressing rooms, a galley, a honeymoon suite, and sleeping berths. Pan Am began flying the Boeing 314 Clippers between San Francisco and Hong Kong in March of 1939. In the 1981 movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones departs for Nepal on a flying boat from Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay. While there are some issues of historical accuracy in this clip of the movie, Treasure Island, artificially built, featured the terminal building for Pan Am and its clipper service across the Pacific. When we come back, Captain Robert Ford, not Harrison Ford, receives his orders from Pan Am despite communication difficulties. I opened my sealed envelope and it said that in just that we were should, should proceed to our nearest safe airport, which in this case was where we had intended going in the first place, Auckland, New Zealand. The radio operator could pick up very little because there was an immediate shutdown on communications. I don't remember exactly, but I think that our operator also shut down transmissions because Apparently nobody knew where the Japanese task force was. As I remember, we spent about a couple of weeks in Auckland, New Zealand. There was a terrific communications pileup on the cables. The American consul, to whom we had to report, was assisted by his elderly father in deciphering a tremendous mass of cables. And for whatever reason, we finally got our message telling us to leave on a route to get back to the United States via the long way around to the West. We uh, had done some preparation. Our instructions were to go back to pick up first all all Pan Am personnel from Numea, New Caledonia, thence to Northeast Australia, thence to Port Darwin and Northwest Australia, across the Australian tropical desert, and thence to Surabaya, Java. Knowing the length and duration of the upcoming flight before leaving for New Caledonia as directed, Ford had his crew disassemble two engines for spare parts. He then proceeded to pick up the remaining Pan Am personnel for transfer to Gladstone, Australia, along with a drum of lubricating oil. Arriving in Australia, Ford found that there was no 100-octane aviation fuel available, a problem that would repeat itself during the journey and he was forced to use auto fuel. As a measure of caution, he convinced two mechanics from the Pan Am personnel group to stay with the flight 
until arrival in New York. It was then off to Sarabaya, Java, which bordered on an active war zone. The Japanese had already conquered French Indochina, but fortunately for Ford and his crew, Singapore had not yet fallen. Ford describes his arrival to Java as follows. As we approached Surabaya, we had just finished flying a recognition procedure when five Dutch fighters settled on us. After I had landed, the Dutch Navy coronel who commanded the naval base said it's a good thing that today for a change our ground air radio worked both ways which it usually didn't because the flight leader wanted to shoot you down. Well we had no communication with the ground so we flew around the harbor and saw a very likely place outside the entrance to the harbor for a landing and landed. We were rather concerned because no rearming boat came out to meet, meet us, but we saw a boat about that category still in the water and men standing up waving us back into the harbor. So we turned and went back tied up to a buoy whereupon I learned that we had landed right in the middle of a naval minefield which is why the rearmament boat wouldn't go near us. Fortunately we're by this time having burned up all that fuel we were pretty light in our draft. The Dutch commandant was the first to greet us and gave me the good news about how lucky it had been that we had communication <laughs> explained the minefield It is impossible to overstate how difficult an endeavor this trip was. Ford had to plot out his own route, pick unknown harbors to set down in, and find his own fuel once he got there. Mechanical servicing of the plane was limited to the men and tools on board. There were no navigational aids, no weather forecast. Ford frequently flew at night by celestial navigation or during the day by dead reckoning. He was reminded of being in a war zone two different times between Java and Trichomalee, Ceylon. We made it up the north coast of Java and through the Sunda Straits where we encountered a vessel which apparently with a Japanese troop transport. It's, it zigzagged wildly right in the straits and we kept a long way off from it. And it came, as it came just about time for us to make landfall for Trincomalee, we decided we'd better get down, we were flying at about three or 4,000 feet, we better get down under the scud. There was a, uh, something between scattered and broken scud. So we lowered down under the stuff and we're going along at about 1,500 to 1,800 feet. 
on Huamo, we went right over the top of a Japanese submarine. But we beat them to their deck gun and got into some clouds and went on a ways and then lowered down again. And sure enough, right on the nose was Trincomalee. Hopscotching through the ports of Southwest Asia and the Middle East, overcoming multiple obstacles, including the lack of high-octane aviation gas and deteriorating engines, Ford finally made it to Leopoldville, located on the Congo River in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Originally named after King Leopold II of Belgium, who had made the country his private colony supplying ivory and rubber, it was made famous in American literature courses by Joseph Conrad in the novella Heart of Darkness. Ford and his crew stayed one day and departed the following morning. Well, the next morning we're all checked out and gassed up and we're headed for Natal, Brazil. There was quite a, uh, there was quite a current, about seven knots as I remember it, in the Congo there. And right ahead of us, if memory serves me right, at the beginning of the Congo Rapids, a lot of rocks and a lot of fast white water, and distant, not over two miles. I very tactfully didn't inquire too intimately into how much we were overloaded on any of these flights, because they weren't passenger flights. Well, I decided that uh, although the wind, what little it was, about two or three knots was against us, the current now was seven knots so that it would be better to go down towards the rapids instead of a clearer area upstream. So we thought, well, we'll give it a whirl. So throttles wide open and trying to rock the aircraft up onto the step. He finally got it on the step, and then it didn't want to go any further. And those rocks in the rapids were getting closer and closer and closer, and I about made up my mind that I was going to pull back two, three, and four engines and open number one up wide and try to swing around and go up river. But just before I pulled the throttles back, it lifted off. Then to my amazement, I had no aileron control. The wheel was absolutely frozen solid, right in neutral. It had been all right on the ground, but I guess with our load, the wings were bent up so much that the cables were stretched just tight on the pulleys. You couldn't move them. Couldn't move that wheel, except you could move the elevators, but you couldn't do anything. So now I'm down on the Congo Gorges, which were way up above us, maybe 500 feet higher than we were. And those gorges wind around 
sometimes pretty abruptly. We had to do this with the rudder and skidded around these corners, which was <laughs> a little unpleasant because <laughs> the throttles weren't pulled back very far. But finally we got cooler air. Needless to say, we made it. And <laughs> we set out for a, a flight that was almost 24 hours to Natal, Brazil. After almost 24 hours of flight time, covering 3,100 nautical miles, Ford and his crew landed safely in Natal, Brazil. Just when you think Ford had had his fill of dangerous and crazy Meyer fun facts, he was about to be disabused of that notion. Rested and ready to leave, he was advised he needed to wait an hour before departing. Two men in rubber suits and oxygen masks went through the plane, spraying it with insecticides, ostensibly because of a potential outbreak of yellow fever. And when Ford and his crew came back on board, all their maps and petty cash were missing. The Pacific Clipper made it back to New York safely, ironically running aground on a sandbar on its final landing. This trip represented as dangerous a flight as Ford had ever contemplated. One of the other Boeing 314s became the first Air Force One presidential transport in 1943, when the Dixie Clipper took Franklin Roosevelt to Casablanca for a meeting with Churchill to finalize Allied strategy against the Axis powers. That concludes this episode of Fire Fun Facts. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, take care.